So hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us here at Dev332. This is the Using AWS to Achieve Both Autonomy and Governance at 3M. My name is Nathan Scott. I am a senior consultant at AWS Professional Services, and welcome. So the session here today is about how do we get developers autonomy to do their jobs, while at the same time being able to govern the processes and ensure that we have compliance with, you know, with governance policy. Now we all know that developers want to move fast, right? They don't want to have any roadblocks. They don't want to have to put requests in for resources, wait for approvals, and wait for provisioning of those resources. Uh, they need to be able to move fast. They need to be able to do, you know, move at the speed of business to be able to, to be able to capture market opportunities and to be able to you know, beat the competition to market. And to be able to do that, they have to have everything out of their way. But on the other hand, we have security needs, right? We have uh, governance and policies in place for a reason. We need to ensure that the security teams need to ensure that, that uh, you know, all the changes are monitored and captured and that everything is in compliance with governance policies that are set forth for that organization. You know, and, and risk mitigation is at the top of their list. You know, they can't have development teams directly in production environments. That's their worst nightmare, right? So how do we achieve it? How do we to give the developers the autonomy to go do what they need to do as fast as they need to do it, but still ensure that the security pieces and the governance are all met, right? To ensure that all the policies are met and we have everything captured that needs to be captured. Well, today, I would like to introduce that we have an AWS customer, James Martin, with, uh, he's the automation manager at 3MHIS. We also have Casey Lee, which is the chief architect with AWS premier partner, Stelligent, with us today to help discuss this, to help us discuss this, this, uh, this problem and some of the solutions that, that we have to it, right? So that we can make developers autonomous and let them move fast, but at the same time ensure that we're complying to governance policy. So some of the topics we'll be talking about today are first, what industry are we talking about here, right? Um, what security requirements do we have? I think you'll be surprised when you hear James talk about what we're actually doing here, right? Um, and we'll also dive deep into the problem and into the solutions and the options that we have for this, right? So we, we, we have solutions in place that allow the developers to do the things they need to do as quickly as they, as they can do them. You know, and at the same time, we have the pieces in place that allows for the governance and the policies to ensure that we're, we're not out of compliance. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce James Martin, Automation Manager with 3M HIS. James. Thank you, Nate. Absolutely. All right. Yeah, so as Nate uh, said, I'm James. I am the Automation Engineering Manager at uh, 3MHS, and uh, we build tools uh, for development teams to hopefully make their uh, jobs um, easier, um, faster, more fulfilling. 
Um, a bit about uh, 3M. So most of you probably know 3M for some of our um, consumer products, uh, things like uh, scotch tape or um, some air filters we make and also post-it notes. Um, but in fact, uh, and we make thousands of other things. Um, uh, but in fact, we also make some software. Um, and so I work for HIS, Healthcare Information Systems. Uh, as you could guess, uh, uh, we uh, build software for the healthcare space. Um, uh, I'm going to give a quick uh, uh, couple blurbs about our business just to set the stage in the background so you all understand um, well, uh, at a high level what we do. So um, our historical business um, was, uh, has been around in some shape for around 30 years. And uh, we are, uh, the historical business was around um, improving um, the process uh, of, of, of gathering, collecting, and analyzing the documentation that occurs when um, someone um, visits a healthcare organization and, and help uh, reduce costs and, and improve that interaction. Um, so lots of analysis on, on documentation uh, of a particular visit. Um, and the future um, state of our, of our products is more focused around uh, a notion called uh, population health. Um, essentially, population health is uh, this, this concept of looking at large uh, swaths of um, healthcare interactions and data and trying to understand how at a higher level um, uh, what, the, how, what performance improvements can be made for the healthcare to, to uh, deliver better outcomes to patients. Um, and just a, a quick slide about the scale that we, we operate on. 1% um, of the gross uh, domestic product flows through uh, uh, 3MHIS systems. Um, we have uh, 24 states uh, have adopted our systems across the United States. Um, and 87% um, of, of the population um, uh, um, is, is, is risk adjusted by some of our systems. So a lot of data uh, and a lot of dollars uh, throw, uh, flow through our systems. So HIS made uh, a shift, uh, made a jump uh, to Amazon Web Services a little over a year ago. Um, and uh, we, we did this typical lift and shift, uh, uh, moving out of, a, uh, of, of an old traditional type of data center into uh, the Amazon environment. And we saw a lot of immediate wins in terms of scalability, in terms of price, the, the typical things you get um, from to moving to uh, a cloud-based platform. Um, but we weren't moving fast enough. So um, their stuff, uh, products weren't getting uh, delivered to customers fast enough, new features weren't getting added and deployed fast enough, um, bugs weren't being fixed and deployed fast enough, et cetera. So we had to evolve again. Um, and, and some of those, those, those bottlenecks um, around that, that uh, the, the sort of uh, earlier phase of operations we were in um, were, uh, well, of course, development time. There's always gonna be the development time bottleneck when uh, you're writing software, but things like manual testing, um, uh, manual QA, manual deployment, all of these things are, are, are slowing down your ability to deliver um, ideas, turn those ideas into code and put them in your hands of the customers. And ultimately, the only bottleneck you really want is coming up with the idea and, and then the development time itself. So how, how, do, you, how do you get there? Um, well, this notion of, of continuous delivery um, that everyone here is familiar with, um, this slide is actually courtes courtesy of uh, Rob Brigham, from, from Amazon, but essentially uh, the, no, the notion is everything that's in the, the blue section of the slide is waste. And, and the faster you can, uh, as, as in terms of the time spent doing it, and the more you can shrink that, uh, that time down, 
the, the quicker this feedback loop is going to happen with your customer. You're going to get uh, product in the customer's hand faster, get feedback from the um, customer, and begin that cycle again. So everything that we, we are trying to develop is to in, increase, uh, uh, reduce the amount of time uh, in this feedback loop. So what was, what was our path uh, to continuous delivery? Um, as you can guess, for an organization of our size, it, uh, uh, there's, there's quite a bit of a maze to navigate through. Um, one of the first things we, stepped, we started with was building uh, an automation engineering team. Um, automation engineering team uh, is comprised of folks that are very knowledgeable of, of Amazon Web Services. Um, they are also knowledgeable of, of about software development, so they understand the complete um, life cycle of software from making the commit uh, to uh, writing the deployment scripts and, and typically have some background in how to, to manage the operating system uh, of the uh, devices where the software is being deployed. So uh, not, not the kind of person who is uh, um, sort of the, the software developer who lives under the stairs in the dark and writes code all day and doesn't want to talk to anybody, but is also comfortable uh, having discussions with other engineers and, and working with other teams. <coughs> Um, the, the second aspect of our, of our journey was choosing uh, the right technology. As a lot of us uh, know, as in engineers, we often uh, can have the tendency to over-engineer uh, over things. Um, so it was very important for us to focus um, at, the, at the problem at hand um, and uh, not try to get ahead of ourselves in what we're trying to do, uh, but look for quick wins and, and, and figure out uh, how we can how we can solve today's problems and not tomorrow's problems, worry about tomorrow's problems tomorrow, um, um, and, and finding the right tool set for that. So that was, uh, for us, uh, native Amazon Web Services whenever possible. As Casey's going to demonstrate later, he's going to show um, all the different tools that we use. Um, um, but you know, using AWS services, and if you can't find um, AWS services that, that meet your need, um, using a SaaS-based solution uh, is uh, really a good idea, because oftentimes those people are going to be able to um, perform this function better than you could internally. The next uh, sort of uh, thing we went through was working with uh, the security team. Um, we, got, we worked with the security, security team really early in our, our journey to continuous delivery. So uh, we got buy-in from the security team very early in the process. We told them what they were trying to do. They gave us a lot of good feedback on how we can build security from the start into, uh, into our pipelines. And security is also a consumer of the tools that we use, uh, that we built. So now we, they've, they've not only give us feedback, but they're vetting our own tools based on their, their consumption. And they also helped a lot with this, this notion of, of, of freedom, uh, developer freedom with guardrails. So you want to have developers, uh, give developers as much freedom as you, uh, as you can, but you don't want them to fall on their face. So you want to build nice uh, guardrails that are with... Uh, that are sort of, from a security perspective, defined by your controls, but um, and not allow them to fall out of those guardrails, but give them plenty of space uh, inside to do what they need to do. And of course, another, um, in our particular case, we deal with lots of sensitive data, so security has very specific restrictions on um, how we can handle uh, data, so our pipelines have to be sensitive to that um, requirement. Um, the, the really important part of our uh, of anyone's journey into continuous delivery and ours is finding the right service to start with. Um, if you're an enterprise, you probably have a lot of uh, big monolithic applications. I can tell you now that those are not 
the right um, ones to start day one on your journey to continuous delivery. Um, find something really, really simple. Maybe it's a simple stateless um, app, um, a, a, a very simple uh, website, but use something really simple to prove your concepts, test out your policies, uh, uh, security policies, um, and just enough to prove um, um, the tools that you're building in your process. And keep doing that and iterating on the simple parts before you start moving on to the big parts, the big, the, the big pro, um, processes. In addition to finding the right uh, service or application you want to put through a continuous delivery, we had to find the right teams uh, to get started with. You, and when you're making this journey, you have to find the team um, that wants the power, right? There's a lot of power in continuous delivery. Our, our goal is to give uh, developers the ability to um, push a commit to uh, a repository and have that commit eventually uh, land in production. So it has to be some, a team of folks that want the power. Um, and they have to be willing to do the work. This is not, we're gonna go build your pipelines and walk away. You're gonna participate and own uh, uh, this pipeline and all the deployment uh, uh, code around it. And oftentimes, if you have a champion in that particular team, uh, the, the process is going to get, move e even faster because you need someone, uh, when you're making this migration, who has to uh, be able to convince the rest of the members of the team that continuous delivery and its principles are, are the right uh, way going forward. And of course, you have to have the business need as well. Um, uh, using an application uh, that gets deployed uh, once or twice a year uh, and, and moving it through continuous delivery, probably uh, not the best use of, of resources. Um, and, and this particular notion uh, has worked out really well for us in our journey. And this idea of, of embedding um, the automation engineering team uh, with the, uh, uh, the application teams that are consuming our, our tools. So um, at, at the get-go, we established some uh, success criteria with uh, the teams that are adopting our tools. We want to know uh, what they want to get out of this, uh, out of this adventure. And uh, our team would work very closely with that team, uh, participate in their sprint cycles, uh, get feedback on the tools that we are producing um, from that team, help them, uh, help them adopt those tools, but bring that feedback directly to the engineering team uh, to make improvements and deliver back to the team. But the problem in, in an enterprise is that you have a lot of teams. So you have this problem of uh, continuous delivery at scale. Um, and so we have some notion of 60 plus uh, scrum teams at HIS. Um, and you know, with continuous delivery, there's actually a lot of complex components that, that need to, to be built and to be managed. Um, and you don't want to put that burden on the responsibility of, of the application development teams. Um, you also want to avoid uh, running into this problem of, of snowflake pipelines, where every single development team uh, is doing a pipeline differently. Um, and you also, we also, you also have this problem of, uh, if you did it the traditional way, uh, you, you could also have this problem of limited governance, where um, uh, it's, it's sort of a tangent of, uh, of the snowflake problem, but there's no oversight into how uh, these pipelines are, are being created um, and managed. So given those, um, that problem set, uh, we uh, came up with this concept of the pipeline factory. Um, so the goal of the pipeline factory is um, stamp out a working uh, pipeline for a, a team with all the bits and pieces that are included with the software uh, delivery process uh, already pre-configured uh, for the team. So the idea was uh, reduce the barrier entry for uh, barrier to entry for a team 
uh, that wants to adopt CI/CD uh, reduce the snowflakes, obviously, um, reduce the setup time. We can provision these things, I think, in less than, than 10 minutes and enforce the, the security controls that um, the, sort of the freedom with guardrails that I hinted at um, before. And with that, I'm going to pass the mic on to Casey, um, and he's going to talk in depth about the tooling that we've actually built uh, to do this. All right. Thank you, James. All right. Good afternoon. My name is Casey Lee. I work for Stelligent. We're an AWS premier consulting partner, and we specialize in DevOps automation. And we've had the privilege of working with James and 3M over the uh, past months on their transformation and the work they're doing around building these pipeline factories. And it, it becomes pretty apparent when you hear James tell the story that the, the challenges that 3M was having really boil down to two main things. The first is that of autonomy. They wanted their teams to have autonomy to be able to control when they're delivering their software to production. And then the second challenge that they had was governance. They didn't want to give that up. They still wanted to be able to ensure that the organization was able to comply with the regulation that they were held to. And so that's where these pipeline factories come in. And so today, what I'd like to talk about are three parts of the solution that we've implemented at 3M that help to achieve both of those challenges. The first thing I'm going to talk about are continuous delivery pipelines and how we built these pipelines that allow the teams to control when their software goes to production. We'll go into details about how the pipeline works and how it met the, met the needs. Second thing we're going to talk about is self-service. And with self-service, not only did we give the teams the ability to control when they're putting their software to production, but also give them ownership of creating and managing those pipelines directly. What's cool about self-service is not only does it help address the autonomy challenge, and giving the teams what they needed, it also helps to address the governance because we're able to come up with automation that allows the teams to build those pipelines in a prescriptive and compliant manner. The last piece that I'm going to talk about is monitoring and how we put automation in place that monitors the things that the development teams are creating to ensure the compliance is being met. So let's start off with continuous delivery. For continuous delivery, we ended up using AWS's uh, code pipeline service. It's a managed service for doing continuous delivery pipelines. And let's, let's review what the problem was. So the, the original problem was that development teams had a manual handoff with the operations teams. And the operations team would then orchestrate the provisioning of the infrastructure and configuration of it in the different environments. Now, th this wasn't completely manual. There was plenty of automation that the operations team had in place to configure those environments. But the challenge, the challenge here is that the orchestration of that automation was done by a human. And so there was this handoff that was error prone, and then there was this impediment where there was one group that did all of that automation. And this is important, you can't miss this. Just because you've built out some bits of automation doesn't mean you've accomplished continuous delivery. And so that's where the pipeline comes in. So what we did was we put in uh, the AWS Code Pipeline service as the solution to orchestrate that automation through the different environments. A couple things to point out about Code Pipeline and the pipelines that we built. First of all, the Code Pipelines were the only path to production. So there was no manual process by which code was getting put in. This was the path to production. Second thing to note is that the way the pipelines were triggered was through commits. So the developers would push their code into code commit, that was the Git repo that we were using. Code commit is an AWS managed Git repository. When the commits happen, code pipeline triggers. Now why do we do that? We do that because we want to keep the batch size as small as possible. 
We don't want to build up these big chunks of code that go to production. We want small batch sizes, ultimately to de decrease risk in these uh, production deployments. Next thing to notice about these pipelines is that there's one pipeline per deployable artifact. We actually consider it to be an anti-pattern to have multiple pipelines representing each environment. Because if you do that, you're back to where you started, where somebody has to orchestrate which pipeline to run as the builds come off the build system. So one pipeline starts at source, promotes through all the environments, and ends in production. The other thing with these pipelines is the only manual input to the pipelines are manual approvals that are yes or no, allow the pipeline to proceed or reject, terminate the pipeline, go back to square one. That's the only place where humans are involved in the pipeline. And then the last thing is that all infrastructure is managed through cloud formation. All infrastructure is managed as code. And what's cool about this is all the infrastructure to run the app, the load balancers, the EC2 instances, the RDS databases, those are all defined in cloud formation, stored in the repository, and owned by the developers. Developers not only control when they're releasing the software, but what the infrastructure looks like that their application runs on. So let's take a look at what this pipeline actually looks like. So as I said, we're using AWS Code Pipeline. A pipeline consists of a series of stages. Each stage consists of a series of actions. What we're looking at here is one stage in the pipeline. This is for managing the deployment of one specific environment. When you configure these actions, they run in, in series, one after the other. You could configure uh, actions to run in parallel, too, if you prefer. And, and the other great thing that Code Pipeline offers is native integrations to tons of other AWS services. For example, Code Commit is the trigger for this pipeline. You've got integration with Code Build for doing uh, build type activity. You've got integration with CloudFormation natively, integration with Code Deploy. And then you can integrate with other third-party things like uh, Jenkins, as you'll see we've done in a little bit. So let's walk through this pipeline. Our pipeline starts with code commit. And you'll notice that there's two actions in the source stage. We've got an application source, and we've got an IAC source, infrastructure as code source. So the reason we've got two different code commit repositories is we've separated the application code from the infrastructure code. And this was done intentionally so that you can use IAM policies to control who has access to the source code versus who has access to the infrastructure code. Next, we go to the configure stage of the pipeline, and the action that we have in there is for seeding Jenkins jobs. Now, uh, we use Jenkins to implement many of the steps later on in the pipeline, but somehow those Jenkins jobs have to be configured. We don't want developers in clicking around Jenkins to configure Jenkins jobs, so we use JobDSL. JobDSL allows you to de define Jenkins jobs in, uh, in your code, and then the pipeline always runs all of your JobDSL to set up the jobs for you before it proceeds to actually using those jobs. So here we've got a sample job DSL. It sets up a Maven job, uses your POM XML in the source, in the root of your repo, and runs a series of Maven goals. Now, keep in mind, remember, this isn't actually running Maven here. This is just creating the Jenkins job. Now we get to the part where we actually get to run the Jenkins job. We move to the build stage of the pipeline. In the build stage, the primary thing to focus on here is we're building the source code. This is where we're using uh, Maven to do things like unit testing, static analysis, as it was. And then we're ultimately compiling and then packaging up an artifact that'll be used later on in the pipeline. Then we get to our first uh, manual gate in the pipeline. This is just approve or reject. That's all that can happen here. This sits in front of the environment that's about to be deployed to. If everything is good, we approve it. It moves into the environment. And then we move on to the infrastructure action. In this case, we're using CloudFormation. 
to provision all the infrastructure necessary to run the application. We're provisioning auto-scaling groups, load balancers, RDS databases, instances, whatever it is the application needs to run. Pipeline waits for the infrastructure to be created. Once it's created, we use AWS Code Deploy to take the artifact that was packaged up earlier on in the pipeline and deploy it into the brand new infrastructure that was launched. Once the infrastructure's up, once the application's configured, now we can use Jenkins, run our end-to-end tests against the new infrastructure and the new deployment. This is where you'd use something like Selenium to run tests and validate the functional and non-functional requirements of the application. If all looks good, we move on to the last action that we see in these stages, which is a blue-green switch. In the blue-green switch, what we're doing is taking the new infrastructure, the new auto-scaling group, called the green auto-scaling group, and we're adding it to the existing load balancer. So for a, a brief period of time, both of the old auto-scaling group, called the blue auto-scaling group, and the new auto-scaling group that was just provisioned is in the ELB. Once the health checks are good on the new auto-scaling group, we then disconnect, pull out the old auto-scaling group, the blue auto-scaling group, pull it out of the ELB, and now we're ready to take traffic in that environment. And so that covers what these pipelines look like. These were the pipelines that we created for the teams. Now we've got to get into self-service, because there's another challenge that comes up. We've got these pipelines in place that we want to use, but the question of how are we going to create them comes up, and who's going to create them? Uh, we don't want snowflake pipelines, as James talked about, and, and as you saw, those pipelines tend to be pretty complex. So we need a way that developers can create these pipelines without having to re-engineer and reinvent the wheel every time. There's another problem. If you notice, there's some resources that need to get created for these pipelines that tend to be very sensitive resources, resources that need to be governed. Things like KMS keys, S3 buckets, IAM roles. These aren't things that we want the developers to have access to create directly. So how do we allow the developers to create these pipelines if we don't want to give them access to those resources? And that's where the idea of the pipeline factory came about. And so what we did was we used a managed service that AWS has called AWS Service Catalog to implement the pipeline factory. So let's discuss Service Catalog real quick just to make sure we're all on the same page here. Service Catalog is a service that has two real sets of users. You have administrators on one side and end users on the other side. In step one, the administrator defines CloudFormation templates. Nothing special, just regular old CloudFormation and you expose parameters out of the template as you normally would. Step two, you take that template, you register it with Service Catalog as what's called a product. Once a product has been registered, the administrator then creates a portfolio for all those products that they just created. When the portfolio has been created, the administrator in step four can then grant access to IAM users, groups, and roles to use that portfolio and launch products out of that portfolio. There's one other step that happens here. The administrator also passes a service role into a Service Catalog that is the elevated rights. That's, that's what gives Service Catalog the right to create those resources that, that we don't want to let developers create directly. So once that's done, we move over onto the other side of the screen. In uh, step five, the end users are now able to browse the products that they have access to. They can either do this through the, the UI, the console, or through CLI. Um, and then they can launch products that they have access to launch. When they launch the products, they have to pass the parameters from the CloudFormation template, and then Service Catalog takes over in step seven, and it talks to CloudFormation using the template that was registered with it to create a stack as prescribed 
by the administrator. You then have notifications available in step eight to both the administrators and to the end users through SNS. And then lastly, you can use Lambdas to do maintenance against these products that have been provisioned. So now if we plug that back into our picture, we see that service catalog becomes the engine for our pipeline factory. We've solved the problem of autonomy. Developers can now go to service catalog and provision the pipelines as they need. We solved the problem of least privilege because the developers didn't get access to those resources. Rather, they only got access to the specific products that we wanted them to use. We solved the problem of governance because we've described the pipelines in CloudFormation and registered it and therefore provided a very opinionated approach to what those pipelines ought to be. So let's do a demo. What I'd like to demo is the pipeline that we built, the pipeline factory that we built for 3M using Service Catalog. Now, full disclosure here, this is a pre-recorded demo because we are going to be launching CloudFormation stacks and running pipelines that take many minutes, and we don't want to wait for that. It has nothing to do with the fact that I'm terrified of doing a live demo. All right, so this is the console for uh, AWS Service Catalog. And what we see here is there's two products available for me to launch. There's the, Blackbird, the pipeline and the team. So we're going to start by creating a team. A team represents the Jenkins instances that need to be created so that we can then use for pipelines. We give the, the product a name. We'll call this the reInvent team. And then we're going to choose a version. Each version has a corresponding CloudFormation template that backs it. We'll go ahead and launch a version one uh, instance of this product. Now we see the parameters that were exposed to the CloudFormation template. We're going to put some parameters in. These ultimately end up becoming tags that we put on the stacks and the team name we need so that we can refer back to it once we start creating pipelines. Put this information in, we move forward, keep going through. We're not going to set up any notifications at this point. And then we'll get to a screen where we get to preview the stack that's about to create it, and we can go ahead and click Launch. Once we click Launch, Service Catalog now does the job of talking to CloudFormation and creating the stack for us. So we see that the, the product exists. It's associated with version one, like we desired. And we can see that it's currently on an in-progress state. We'll just refresh this a little bit. We see that CloudFormation stack has been associated. And we're going to jump over there and take a look at the CloudFormation console next to see what's starting to create. So here we're looking at the CloudFormation console. And we see that we have various stacks starting to come in progress and go through completed state. We've got sub-stacks for buckets, substacks for roles, substacks for KMS keys. And what also is happening here is some of these nested stacks are actually stacks in other accounts. Because remember, we have one pipeline that needs to be able to deploy across accounts. So we're creating buckets, keys, roles in many accounts all through this one product and service catalog. And now we're waiting for our Jenkins autoscaling group to come up. And once that's done, our stack is now complete. We can jump back over to the console for service catalog, and we'll be able to confirm that it also shows that it's completed. We have outputs from the stacks. We have the Jenkins URL, and we can click on that to look at the new Jenkins cluster that was just created for us. So we'll go ahead and click on the Jenkins URL. 
And what we see is a brand new Jenkins instance that has no jobs, except for backup job. As we'd expect, it's brand new. There's no jobs created yet. It's not until the pipeline runs and the job DSL runs that we'll start to see some jobs show. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's jump back over to service catalog. And we'll choose the pipeline product and start launching that. So again, we have to pick a name. Call it reInvent 2017 widgets, because I'm not very creative. And then we'll choose a version. Then we'll get the same prompt where we can put in the parameters for the CloudFormation stack. We're going to pick an email address that's going to be used for notifications as the pipeline progresses. We've got to put in some more information for tags on the resources that are created. And then we have to point back to the team that we just created so that we know which Jenkins instance to target with these pipelines. And we next through this, get to our confirmation screen where we go ahead and review everything. And once everything looks good, we're going to go ahead and launch our stack. So same story here. We see some new CloudFormation stacks are going to start showing up. We've got a code commit repository being created. We've got a code pipeline being created. And once this completes, we'll be able to jump back over to Service Catalog. And we'll be able to confirm that the service catalog sees that the CloudFormation stack has been completed. And then we'll also get a new output, output for our pipeline URL, where we can jump over to code pipeline and now look at the brand new pipeline that was just created for us through service catalog. This looks very similar to the pipeline I was showing in the slides earlier. We see uh, we've got our build and package stage, and then we've got our stages for all the environments that are deployed and tested against. So we see that the source code is currently being run, or is being pulled down from code commit. Let's go ahead and click on code commit and look at the brand new code commit repo that was created. Now, there's a bunch of files in here, and you might be thinking, well, how did these files get here? We seed the code commit repository with CloudFormation, with JobDSL that is needed for the pipeline to work. The developers can then change it, but this gives them a starting point that has a green pipeline. You don't want to give them a pipeline that's red and say good luck. So this gives them a green pipeline that has the JobDSL, the CloudFormation, everything they need. To, to start working with their pipeline. If we look at the commit history, sure enough, the, there's only one commit on this repo three minutes ago. We implemented this through a Lambda function that serves as a custom CloudFormation resource on the stack that gets created. So now through the magic of post-production, let's watch uh, as this pipeline progresses. Uh, first, let's jump over here. Let's look at our, our C job. So in our C job, we see the C jobs run, and now all of a sudden that Jenkins instance has a bunch of jobs defined. These jobs weren't here a minute ago when we looked. These jobs all got created from the job DSL that was inside that code commit repo that was created. These jobs will now support the rest of the pipeline as it progresses and deploys to the different environments. Okay, so now let's let the pipeline run. We see we're going through, we're doing our build. Build passes, we move on to an environment where we're launching CloudFormation. CloudFormation is going to spin. I wish CodePipeline always ran this fast. It's going to launch a bunch of stacks for us, an auto-scaling group. Uh, once the infrastructure is done, we use CodeDeploy to deploy the WAR file that was compiled in Jenkins a, a little bit ago. Once CodeDeploy finishes, we move on to the testing phase where we run some end-to-end -end tests, and then we do the blue-green switch, at which point Pipeline's gone on to the next stage and we're ready for an approval. One last thing I want to demonstrate, which is how do we do changes to the pipeline factory? Well, in this case, let's upgrade our widgets pipeline to version 2. We noticed there was a version 2 out there. 
So with the version two, all you have to do is choose the new version for your existing pipeline. You can change parameters if you want, or you can just proceed. And then you run update. Service catalog does the job of applying that new template to that existing CloudFormation stack. And so by, by using this approach, we let service catalog and CloudFormation do the heavy lifting of converging changes onto an existing pipeline. And so now we wait for service catalog to do its thing. We see it's showing version two, which is good. And service catalog sees that the change is done. And now we've just upgraded our pipeline from version one to version two. There's one thing I, I, I kind of glossed over there. I want to go into a little more detail. And that is when service catalog creates that CloudFormation stack, it's having to create resources in other accounts that represent the other environments, the CI environment, the test environment, the prod environment. Each of those environments needs to have resources set up so that this pipeline actually works. We do this through a, a Lambda function that serves as a custom uh, resource in the, the parent stack. And the Lambda function then assumes a role in the other account and runs a CloudFormation template in that account. Now, CloudFormation has native support for nested stacks. The challenge is it doesn't support cross-account roles. So we had to create a Lambda function to solve that for us. This is what this looks like in code. So this is a, a snippet of CloudFormation that's creating the buckets in the prod account. A couple things to point out here. You've got the assume role. That's where the ARN of the IAM role in the other account is passed in. You've got the template URL. This is the URL to the YAML file that serves as the CloudFormation template that's going to be run in that other account. And then you've got parameters like usual that you're passing into that CloudFormation stack. And then the last thing we did in the self-service side is we created a, a website where developers could go to to support themselves on these pipelines. It's not enough to just build the tooling and then hope they can figure it out. We needed a place where developers can go to onboard themselves, to solve common problems, and also to learn about what's changing in the pipeline factory. As we come up with new releases, as we change the IAM structure, as we change bucket policies, and we want teams to start using these, we'll publish a new version, and then teams would go in, as we saw self-service, update their pipeline to the newer version. This documentation shows what's changed and how to do those migrations. So that wraps up the self-service part of the solution and brings us to the last section, which is monitoring. And this is our final step in, in, in ensuring that governance is maintained inside the organization. The first thing we did was we added CFN NAG to our pipeline. CFN NAG is a tool that does static analysis of CloudFormation templates. This tool looks at your CloudFormation and looks for any potential security vulnerabilities like overly permissive security groups or uh, external ELBs or overly permissive bucket policies, IAM roles. We run CFN NAG very early in the pipeline at the same time that we're building the source code. And this gives us a view into what the developers are doing with CloudFormation before we even get close to running the CloudFormation in an actual account. CFN NAG is an open source product that was developed at Stelligen. It's available at Stelligen's GitHub repo. Uh, URL's on the screen. There'll also be a URL I'll share a little bit later. Next thing we did was we used a tool called Cloud Custodian. This is an open source tool that Capital One put out. And with Cloud Custodian, you define policies, and then you run those policies as Lambda functions in your accounts. These Lambda functions 
are triggered either on a scheduled basis, like a cron notation, or in response to CloudTrail events when things are happening in your account. The rules will look for certain patterns on the resources that are created, and then it can either notify people that bad stuff's happening in your account, developers are doing things they shouldn't be doing, or it can actually do immediate remediation of those uh, policy violations. Here's a sample policy. This policy is looking for S3 buckets, and it's attached to CloudTrail. So anytime the put bucket ACL uh, API call is made, uh, CloudTrail sends an event. This triggers the Lambda function that runs the policy. This is then looking for any buckets that have global grants enabled or website hosting enabled. And it does a couple things if it finds a bucket in this state. First of all, it deletes the global grants. Then next, it'll remove any website hosting that's enabled on the bucket. And then lastly, it'll notify the resource owner and the central security team that the bucket has, the, has been uh, deleted or updated. Next example policy is a periodic policy. So this one's not responding to CloudTrail events. This one's just running every 30 minutes. You see the periodic, uh, the schedule line uh, running every 30 minutes in cron type notation. This is looking for EC2 instances that have the cost center tag or the team tag absent from the instance. And what this policy is going to do is it's going to first of all stop the instance, and then it's going to mark the instance to be terminated in two days from now. Another tool that we've used to help with governance is a tool called Governor. This is a tool that was built internally at 3M, and this integrates with your pipelines. And what this does is after the CloudFormation is launched in an account, Governor then runs as, a, as the next step in the pipeline as a Lambda function. It queries a set of rules that are defined inside of a DynamoDB database. Some of those rules could be organizational level rules that are defined by the security organization. But some of those rules could be rules defined by the uh, product teams themselves. And what's cool about that is these can also be functional tests. So product teams can create tests that are actually looking for functional requirements of their application and their infrastructure, not just looking for security vulnerabilities. If any of those tests fail, either the product level test or the organizational level test, it causes the pipeline to fail and developer has to go back to square one. The last thing that we did for monitoring is we created this pipeline dashboard. If you're creating continuous delivery pipelines, it's not enough just to build the pipeline and assume it's making an impact in your organization. You have to measure and you have to adjust based on what you see. So what this dashboard is doing is it's showing key indications of those pipelines that tell whether or not they're doing their job or not. Some of the metrics that we look at are things like cycle time, how often between production release, we look at lead time. How long does it take from a commit until the code hits production? We look at mean time between failure, which is how often is your pipeline failing? And then mean time to recovery of the pipeline. How quick does the team swarm and get that pipeline back to green? And then the last metric we look at is feedback time, which is how long does it take for a pipeline to fail? We don't want to wait hours to find a bug. We want to find a bug as fast as possible. We want a low feedback time. It's not enough to just build pipelines and assume they're working. You have to measure. If you're not measuring your pipelines, you're doing it wrong. You've got to keep an eye on what's going on and be able to adjust and, and, and make sure they're having the impact on the organization that you intend them to. How does this work? This is a completely serverless solution. So Code Pipeline already emits events to CloudWatch for you, so you get that for free. So there's a Lambda function that responds to the events and turns those into CloudWatch metrics. Then we have a dashboard that's looking at those metrics and generating what you just saw. 
The trick is this. With CloudWatch dashboards, you can't do dynamic lookups. Like getting the list of pipelines is not something you can dynamically do in the definition of your dashboard. So what we had to do was write another Lambda function that runs every five minutes, and it queries the CloudWatch metrics, looks for the discrete list of pipelines as uh, dimensions in the metrics, and then generates the dashboard for us. The serverless application model, SAM, makes this very easy to do through CloudFormation. So this is the CloudFormation for the Lambda this is, for the, this is the CloudFormation for deploying the Lambda function that, that builds the metrics for the dashboard. You see the call out to the, the Python code that serves as the implementation of the, the Lambda function. And then you have an events section that says, I want this Lambda function to trigger on CloudWatch events, specifically CloudWatch events that are code pipeline sourced events and are of these different types, either start or stop pipeline executions, stages, or actions. Anytime a pipeline stage or action starts or stops, we want to get notified. Lambda function runs and does the metrics for us. Likewise, here's the cloud formation for deploying the function that builds the dashboard. It's very similar. We point to some Python code. And then instead of triggering this based on CloudWatch events, we trigger it on a schedule. You've got a cron type notation for the schedule, runs every five minutes, and builds our dashboard for us. So let's review what we've talked about. We've talked about two things mainly, autonomy and governance. On the autonomy side, we talked about how 3M achieved their autonomy through continuous delivery pipelines and self-service. We looked at how the first thing they did was that all infrastructure was defined as code in CloudFormation or in JobDSL. We talked about how all deployments are done through that pipeline. And the initiation of the pipeline is triggered by code commit so that we can ensure small batch size and low risk. Last thing was that for the pipeline, the only manual step of the pipeline is an approve or reject. That's the only human input for the pipeline. And then the last thing for autonomy was we use service catalog to enable that self-service for the developers. On the governance side, we achieved governance through self-service and through monitoring. We started with saying, let's use CloudFormation to define the, the pipelines. By doing so, we are then able to use service catalog as the self-service engine for the pipeline factory. Service catalog provided the self-service that was needed, and it also provided the governance that the organization demanded. By using CloudFormation for provisioning the infrastructure, we're able to use static analysis with CFN NAG to ensure that the stuff that the developers were doing was compliant with the organization's requirements. We're also using Cloud Custodian to assess and enforce, not just notify, but also remediate any incompliant resources in the account. And then lastly, we built that dashboard for monitoring the pipelines, getting a single view on how healthy the pipelines were so that we could adjust. I'm going to leave you with this URL. This is a, a microsite that was created for this talk. This has a list of all of the projects that I talked about, CFN NAG, Cloud Custodian, Pipeline Dashboard. And it also has a link to a bunch of blogs. There was a blog article just recently posted on Stelligence website about that dashboard. I encourage you to check this out and get more information. With that, I'm going to invite Nate and James back up. And we've got some time for questions. Before we get into the questions, I just want to say that link that uh, he just shared, I'm super happy to announce that uh, within that link, you'll find uh, 3M's first uh, open source project on GitHub, which is 
uh, the pipeline, uh, you'll find the source code to the pipeline dashboard that uh, uh, Casey uh, was uh, demoing earlier. Very good. So we got a couple mics in the aisles if you have any questions. Don't be shy. We'll start pointing at people in a second. I have a question. This is, can you hear me? Yes. Yep. All right. Um, I, I'm Ethan Eldridge, and uh, I, my question is on um, data governance and how uh, um, you're managing the data that goes with applications. Um, that's probably a better question for the security team, <laughs> to be honest. Sorry. Other questions, don't be shy. Um, so this is the first thing we ever open source. I can tell you it was uh, um, a fun process, but I certainly hope to uh, open source uh, more things that my team is building um, in the future, absolutely. Yeah, could you describe a little bit more around the manual? Uh, step and have you found any ways around automating that code review process? So it, the manual step was built there originally because, um, uh, as, as, as a gate, because most teams are starting out and this are not comfortable enough with the code freely flowing uh, into the next level environment. Certainly, um, if they had a mature enough uh, pipeline with mature enough testing and they are comfortable with that happening, um, then there, there, there can be the discussion of let's remove the manual gate. Sure, right now we are about nine people. Yeah. Uh, in your diagrams, you had your RDS instances in there. How do you handle data migration between um, your deploys? Um, Liquibase is uh, primarily what we are using for database migrations. Do you want to comment any further on that? So some of the infrastructure is not launched from scratch on every run of the pipeline. So for example, the load balancer is maintained, the DNS records are maintained from release to release. So those are updates that are happening. The, the auto-scaling group and the EC2 instances are the ones that are blue-green. Those are the ones that are launched new on every pipeline run. So the database is maintained and preserved along pipeline runs. Yeah, so you could actually, if you needed to, you could actually have multiple pipelines that have different sections for, this could be data-centric, right, or infrastructure that you never gets destroyed. It doesn't have to have, you kind of separate them out by rate of change, right? That's kind of how you look at a, a pipeline. Um, and if you have different rates of change, then you can have different pipelines that accommodate that, those rates of change. So you have an automation engineering team yes. uh, sort of uh, started this efforts, and yep. you uh, putting this, everything with the code sort of uh, changes that that um, responsibility to the, to the engineers. How do you how do you keep them up to date with that that sort of technology? It's another, another set of stuff they have to learn sure. that they wouldn't have to otherwise. So we 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 provide training, uh, right? So. Um, you know, we, we've made a significant investment in, in AWS training for, for the teams. Um, we provide a lot of documentation. Um, we provide this capability to embed with the team who, who may need that, that extra help. Um, and um, um, I missed the, what was, uh, what was the last part of your question, sorry. All right, so yeah, just the, the, more, the more documentation and, and the more, uh, oh, I know what the, the other post, uh, part we have I wanted to mention was, uh, we have this concept of 
uh, a user contract. So the person, the team that's adopting the, the pipeline uh, factory has to understand that these are going to be your responsibilities. You're, you're owning the, your code deployments, you're owning your infrastructure code, you're owning uh, XYZ. And, uh, and with that, um, there is the responsibility of my team, which is owning the platform that, that builds all these things. Um, and then you know, defining that up front and letting them understand what they have to know sort of enforces, uh, forces them to have to go back in and, and study up on, uh, and learn what they need to know before they adopt the framework. I was curious if this model, um, to the degree that you're deploying public-facing services, could you comment on like public DNS registration, API gateway, if you're using that interest service or interest service off, uh, if you're doing any of these, these things, how, how did you solve those details? DNS. Um. So on the, the external side, there's, there's proxies that are configured outside the pipelines that we've run into. For the inter-auth service, uh, they're using SAML. There's a, a federated um, IDP that's doing tokens between the, the service calls. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like um, engaging with business and getting the business side to say, like, yes, pipeline factories, we need this, this is going to make you know, us more agile, better. Um, uh, I think that's interesting. That's a good, good question. Um, uh, I, so I, I've been at 3M for a year, and, and that notion had, had, had started uh, the, at least uh, in its infancy uh, right before I, I, I came along. Um, and, uh, I, I, and it was really driven, um, in fact, by, uh, by my boss and, and, and the, the our R&D team that, that we, we work in. I'm not sure quite how much uh, the business had influence on, on that yeah. decision. Well, and I, th I think the business actually drove it. Uh, it was not a technology. I, I was there from the very beginning. It really wasn't a, um, it really wasn't something that IT brought to the company or to the business. The business actually worked hand in hand to get this capability up and going because they had a need for it, right? So um, I, th I think the key to it is 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 working with the business, not necessarily working with IT, right? So. So that was pretty much almost 100% my question. Um, the only bit I'd like to maybe add on, were there any parts that you had to kind of sell into the business process, or were they just, hey, we want this, whatever you guys decide is the right answer, and let us know what we need to do? So I, I think I can, I can answer that too. Um, so realistically, um, and I, I think if you talk to you know, some of the, the executives and higher-ups so over there at, at 3M. What you'll hear is they, 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 they developed a, a, a magnet, as, um, as one of the leaders calls it. And the whole point is, is you were never forced to use this, right? That's not the point. They literally built a magnet, and everybody came to it. There was no forcing anybody to do anything, right? It was just the path of least resistance. And every team saw that anybody who went and used this got, to, got a heck of a lot further a lot faster than if they tried to pave their own way, right? So, I mean, it's just essentially, it's a magnet. Like he said, it's, it's exactly what it is. It's a magnet that you don't have to worry about pushing on anybody, right? It pulls. So you, you, you sorry, so you described uh, with CloudFormation templates, you were able to create these common build pipelines um, is there any way that you all have looked at treating that as a, a base pipeline and then teams could add on to it to make it more complex? Yeah, so as part of that, um, 
um, pipeline provisioning process, um, you can actually select a number of different application types, like a Windows application or a Linux application or a serverless application, and you get essentially a hello world application um, that is fully, uh, comes with a fully green pipeline that is completely working. So the team can then uh, um, uh, go back and, and modify that to their liking and, and implement their own application within that um, template. Uh, so we actually built a number of tools around how to, how to template uh, a source repository and push um, rendered uh, uh, code into that repository that works with that particular team's uh, pipeline. So there's a bit of technology around uh, doing that. But yeah, we support the notion of. Okay, uh, so that's that been identified up front then. Sorry? It's been identified up front, those different sets of requirements. Yes, that's part of, yeah, so that's like in the, in the, in the service catalog interface is where you would select uh, the type of uh, uh, pipeline that you wanted to build. Okay, thank you. Yep. Uh, one thing to add to that, yeah. the, template, the template creates the pipeline, but the developer then can go where they want with it. So it's kind of like picking a good starting point. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they're not locked in. They're not stuck that. with it. Yeah, right. Okay, exactly. sounds good. Um, with 60 Scrum teams, how big is your team? Um, yeah, my team is about nine people right now. Just nine people? Okay. Yeah. And the second question, with the blue-green switch uh -huh. that you provide through the pipeline, uh -huh. uh, who defines and how developers define the rules of switching? How do they switch off? At the, at, the, at the provisioning stage, at the final stage when you put another version in the load balancer, who defines the automated rule of switching between two versions? So the, the rules for defining when the switch, so are you saying the, the rules on when to switch or how the switch happens? Yeah, the rules that it is safe to switch. So if it's safe to switch is, is governed by health checks. So we add the auto-scaling group to the load balancer and we wait for the load balancer to have the, to, to show all, all good health checks on the instances in the green auto-scaling group. And health checks provided by developer teams? So. Yes, so the health checks are built by the development teams. So the health check is something that is a part of the application. And uh, we have a, a, a configuration for how, the, uh, how to point to their health check. But the team defines the health check, and it's up to them to how good of a health check they implement in their application. It looks like you had an amazing journey for a year here to get to this place, and it, yes. it looks like a pretty awesome pipeline. Thank you. What kind of uh, things are coming up uh, that you're hearing are the newer things that you need to start adding to this yeah, process? Yeah, so I'm interested in uh, uh, containers. So um, uh, that would be, for us, it's one of the next logical steps um, uh, for teams. Uh, it was a little bit early in, in the beginning to build in container functionality from the start. Uh, but based on where we are uh, right now and with what we built, the containers is just another deployment methodology. Um, and so we, the, the groundwork has been established, so it should be relatively uh, straightforward going forward. Okay, thanks. Good luck. Yeah, thank you. So at the beginning of your presentation, you talked about the whole driver behind this was go faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's the level of improvement that you've seen and have you been able to articulate that back to the business in a form of uh, a cost benefit or um, the, paying back the investment thus far? The problem, one of the, the problems was those metrics weren't being tracked uh, very well uh, and uniformly prior to this. Um, I, I can tell you with uh, some of our teams, um, they had to wait uh, uh, weeks uh, or, or days between deployments and now are doing multiple deployments a day. 
Um, so you know, anywhere from you know, a 200% you know, to a order of magnitude uh, increase in the number of deployments. Excellent, congratulations. Thank you. All right, thanks for coming. Enjoy the rest of your session.